morning. Let us go before the throne of grace together and ask our God to help us at this moment. So, Father, we, we come. Thank you. Thank you that you, being a holy God, allow us to come as we are. That we get to come with all our, with all our sin, with all our baggage. And we come and we get to be reminded once again of the cross, of Jesus, of our Savior. That we don't have to dwell on our sin, but on the one that paid for our sin. And so this morning, Father, I just ask that any hearts that remain dead in their trespasses, I pray that you would awaken them through your word. That the Holy Spirit would awaken hearts here this morning. That anyone here, any child of yours, that has been dealing with sin, with habitual sin, with patterns of sin, Father would be convicted. Thank you that we have a Savior that leaves in 99 and goes after the one. Because he is a good shepherd. And so we want to be reminded of that good shepherd here this morning. Help me to remind your people of him. That they may treasure him. And not just treasure him, but hold on to him. So Father, be with us now. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask. Guide us and help us to apply your word to our hearts. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. We continue in our study of Acts. Uh, we've been going through this, and I know it's been a couple of weeks, so it's always good to kind of do a, a quick refresher. Where we've been, we've been seeing what Paul has been going through. The New Testament church, what Luke has written to Theophilus, reminding Theophilus, hey, this is what's happening, right? wrote the Gospel of Luke, and now he's continuing with this, with this uh, Acts, and he's writing everything that's happening. We're seeing the Holy Spirit come upon the church, right? The Pentecost, and we're going to speak on that here in a second. The Holy Spirit comes, the church is being built, right? Uh, the New Testament church, as it were, is being built uh, no longer on the law, but on the Gospel, right? And we're seeing this happen, but at the same time, we also see that there's a lot of controversy, there's a lot of heresy, there's a lot of misunderstandings, there's a lot of division, there's a lot of misrepresentation that's taking place. And so this morning, we want to go ahead and tackle some of that because we're not any different. As a church, we're absolutely no different. The stuff that we have to deal with, the stuff that you read in the blogs, the things that you read about in commentaries, just don't look too far, look at the SBC. The SBC had a whole convention on this, you know, uh, famous pastor, big pastor, you know, <laughs> female preachers now, and now you have, you're dealing with all of this, right? And again, these things are not new, but we have to deal with them. And so how do we deal with them? How do we go about dealing with these things as we face them? Because they're not new. And of course, some of us would say, well, you know, it, it'd be so great if we could just be like, and I said this before, like the New Testament church, like the first century church. Right? They, they were just so authentic and so real and, and genuine. But we forget the stuff that they had to deal with. We want the good. We want the, the authenticity. But that, that authenticity oftentimes came through persecution. That authenticity many times came through controversies where you now had to define and put your stake in the ground and say, this is where I stand. And so we have to see these things in light of, the, of those truths. So it's not, it's, not, it's not that simple just to say now uh, that, that we want to be like them. Of course, they didn't have the, 
the theologians, oh yeah, they had Paul, but they didn't have the access that we have today, where you can just simply type a couple of characters, uh, Google. You don't even have to type, you can just simply Google. <laughs> you can speak it, Siri, can you please bring up such and such a topic, or doc, and, and it'll bring it right up on your phone. I mean, that's that easy. It's that easy. You didn't have that information, wasn't as quick as it was, as it is for us. So, we have, we have the responsibility as much as the first century church had to discern the Word of God. It hasn't changed. That is no longer just, well, it never was, but it's, it's not an option. It's not an option that we just get to go ahead and be you know, flippant with the Word of God. So we have to go back and, 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 and go to the Word and discern. And what does this mean? Precisely because we have so many resources a plethora of resources at our disposal. So there's no excuse really for us to go ahead and just simply say, well, you know what, I really don't care about that particular topic. I don't want to deal with it. I just, it's going to bring more division. No, we have to take positions at times. Now, on what we take position, that's what we're going to see. What are the, where, where do we drive our stake in the ground? And where can we say, you know what, I'm just going to extend charity to you. you know, I, don't, I don't know, uh, we have... People that believe in baptism and believe that um, you have to be, baptism is when you are done, then you profess faith. Others say, well, you know, you'll get sprinkled and you're part of the covenant. <laughs> we will extend grace. We'll extend um, charity to one. But there are certain things that we cannot do that. I say, well, you know, with this topic, eh, I'll extend charity to no. doesn't work that way. So let's look at this together. We're in Acts 21. We're in Acts 21. We're looking at verses 20 the second part of verse 20 all the way to the end, which is verse 26 in this portion. So it's a familiar topic. I will tell you that. We have seen it, but I know that a lot of you weren't here before um, and maybe weren't here when we, when we dealt with this back in Acts 15. So I want to jog our memory a bit. So this morning, I want to be able to give some context, want to give some observations, and then basically go over two points. And what are those two points? Paul's teaching about the law being misrepresented. Okay. And then the second part is the church leaders had to resolve this misrepresentation of Paul's teaching. So how do we deal with this and how do they go about it? So read with me Acts 21. We're going to read verses, I'll, I'll start uh, verse 17 to get the context, but um, we're going to read all the way to 26. It says, When we had come to Jerusalem. The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And now here comes our text for this morning. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands were among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. 
Thus all will know that there is nothing in what we have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in, in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles, who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment, that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went, in, went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. And this is a reading of God's word. So, what are some observations that we see immediately here, right, on the onset, right? So we see that Paul, we know from Acts 20, that he had an urgency. He was hastening to make it to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. And it seems that he has arrived just in time for that. Now, we've disclosed it and we've gone over this. What is Pentecost? Well, the Old Testament describes, again, this, this is really the, the Feast of Weeks, which is bringing to uh, attention, hey, the end of the harvest time has come. Okay? Now, in the New Testament, this Pentecost is the actual dispensation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit now has taken residence, fulfilling the prophecy of Joel right, in, in the Old Testament. So we see this happening now, and the apostles now putting their faith, uh, well, the, the Holy Spirit coming in uh, upon the apostles, taking residence in there, and also in God's people as they're putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And we see that in Acts, at the beginning of Acts. So begins this New Testament church age. Paul is not traveling alone. He is not traveling alone at all. He's traveling with other people. Luke is part of that group. So he has his companions. And they've been welcomed by the brothers in Jerusalem. As they receive them gladly. We dealt with this last time. If you're there. And part of that was James and the elders. Which is when the next day they go there. Now, which James are we talking about? Hopefully you guys remember that this is not James, the brother of John. He already had been killed. Herod already had taken care of him. Remember that Peter was arrested. James is taken out. So which James is this? Is it the half-brother of Jesus? So now we're starting to see that James and the elders are there. So these are the church leaders. Okay, These are the church leaders that are taking place and the same ones that were uh, spoken of in Acts 15. In Acts 15. Remember, the same topic came up about circumcision. And so they had to deal with it. And they addressed that same issue. And was it necessary to keep the law of Moses? And James is the one, according to Acts 15, is the one that gives the judgment. It says it there, and we read it. Now, what else do we see? We see there's these Judaizers. Who are these Judaizers? It's these group of Jews that constantly desire to go ahead and put the Gentiles under mind, saying, hey, you have to follow the law. You have to follow the law. You have to go ahead. In other words, the way you're justified is by keeping the law. That's how you get to please God. So keep keeping the law. And some of us know what that language is like. If you want to be truly right with God, follow the law. Follow the Ten Commandments. I come from a religion that does exactly that. Right? Follow the Ten Commandments. But here's the problem. Who does? And this is the issue. Because the more we try to keep it, the more we find that we can't. And so they're going to have to deal with this, with this issue of the Mosaic Law 
once again. And it reminds us, and it's a good time to remind us, it was Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. There's really nothing new under the sun. I'll read this because we know that that part says, oh, there's nothing new under the sun, but let me read it. What it actually says, it says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun, and many times we finished there, but look at what he continues. He says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. It's the same circle. It's the same circle. We find ourselves in the same thing, and we're gonna and we're gonna die, and generations after us are gonna be dealing with the same things. It might be phrased a little bit different, might be disguised a little different, but at the core, it's the same. And so we have to deal with that. Say, well, how do how do we go about it? Now, the question that we have is: will James and the elders of the church change their position? Will they change their position, or are they going to maintain their position? Because those things happen. I mean, Paul addressed Peter, right? Peter was putting the Gentiles again under, under, under that, that, that yoke, which he talks about in Galatians. The whole letter of Galatians is precisely to deal with this. Don't put on, you know, Galatians 5, don't put on, don't put on the yoke of slavery again. Like, that's the idea, the yoke of bondage. So, they're going to have to deal with this, and we're going to see here in a, in a moment. So let us look here at verse 20b and verse 21. It says, And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to their custom. It was this law of Moses. The Jews who had come to know, who had come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Paul being one of those Jews. This is the promised Messiah. Wait no longer. You don't have to keep on searching. It's him. But they're still dealing with it. They have to deal with the law of Moses. What do we do with the law of Moses? Do we just simply discard it and forget about it? Or do we have to continue obeying it? What gives? Is it law? Or is it gospel? Where do you stand? If someone comes to you and asks you, hey, I was taught always to obey the Ten Commandments, what do you say? You say, no, you know, you don't have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore because Jesus already fulfilled them all. Or do you say you have to continue obeying the Ten Commandments? Ah, see, now, now all of a sudden you're, you have to give an apologetic, you have to give defense for what you believe. And so how do we deal with it? And here hopefully we're going to be able to see that. So the Jews, and, and, I, and I mention this specifically because, like I mentioned, I come from a religion where many times people would claim, and, I, and I'm saying it, and I'm going to be honest, I mean, this is part of the Roman Catholicism. I come from it. I get it. This is what I was told. This is what I was shown. You have to keep the commandments. Now, of course, I thought I was good, and, and I, did my, I was baptized, and I did my first communion. I even did my, my confirmation, so I must be good. And many people come to the same conclusion. But they never go to confession. And that's central. They don't go to church. It's required. They don't go. Eh. See, and all of a sudden, there's this incongruency. There's a mismatch. There's something that doesn't fit. Hey, but I'm a Catholic. 
And so you're basically, if you ever heard like these, uh, there's a term in, in, in politics called rhinos, right? These are the, the Republicans in name only. They only use this title, but they don't hold to their particular, well, this is kind of like that, that same mindset, like you're Catholic in name only, but you really don't adhere to the, your very own doctrine that you claim to hold, that you call yourself. But the Jews weren't like that. The Jews didn't just simply say, well, I'm a Jew. And, no, they knew the law. And they held the law. They held on to it. Some even to an extreme. So we have to understand that. What's the misrepresentation? It's the idea of, is Paul teaching the Jews that are among the Gentiles that they have to forsake Moses and no longer walk according to their customs? Is that exactly what he's teaching them? At this particular time, it's also, as a side note, the church historians know that this was a lot of turmoil for the Jewish community. There was not, in other words, the Roman overlords, the people, the Romans, are taking control. So the Jews, of course, at this moment, what are they doing? They're coming in, they're doubling down and saying, no, we're Jews, and we're proud of our Jewish nationalism. So now, even more so, because to be Jew is to understand the law of Moses. The Mosaic law, it's crucial. It's part of your culture, it's part of your Judaism. So, how do you express that Jewish nationalism? Yeah, I'm going to hold on to the law. So, that is what's happening. If I, if allow, me, allow me to illustrate here for a second. You guys like geometry, right? No? You like geometry? Remember those geometry courses? I know some of you kids are maybe taking I know. But if you remember geometry, uh, if you're an architect, you better like geometry. <laughs> Um, but if, if, you're, if, you're, if you remember those geometry, you, you had theorems. Remember those theorems? And those theorems, you had to, there's certain, oh, I know, I know all the grumble. <laughs> How many tests have I failed because of, the, of geometry? And I'm not even an architect, you know, but I had to take it. Well, you remember those theorems. And they would tell you, okay, this line bisects, in this triangle bisects this line A and B, and now all of a sudden, A and angle A is congruent to the other angle, and the other angle is congruent to the other one, and now you have to prove a statement. Right? Remember that, kind of? Well, this is kind of what, what, what we have to do. We have to understand that there's certain givens in our faith. The scriptures give us specific givens that are non-negotiable. And there's a place that we can start to handle these things. In other words, we don't have to start from a blank slate. Scripture has already given it to us. And the beautiful part is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So I don't have to be the genius, believe it or not. I just have to look and say, well, what does God's Word say? And if I can go ahead and look at God's Word honestly, genuinely, not twisted, not twisted to what I want it to say, but what does God want me to understand about Him? So let me give you an example in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is what? Inspired by God, it's breathed by Him. It's good for that instruction, for reproof, for training its righteousness, right? So we see all that. So we know that Scripture is breathed by God. It is inspired by Him. So if we're going to try to understand God's Word, we can go ahead and understand that, hey, this is by Him. Now, what else do we know? What are the other givens that we know? Well, Psalm 99, 1-3. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. 
holy is he. So he is holy. Now how do we know that he's holy? He tells us he's holy. He's revealed it to us that he's holy. And he's given us a law to understand that, hey, this is what holiness looks like. This is my character, my attributes are in the law. Oh, but that's God's word. Okay, well, what about the Westminster Catechism? It also speaks to that. The beautiful thing about a catechism, we were just talking about it here this morning, going over it, right, Joshua? Uh-huh. So, <laughs> we're talking about catechism. It's a great way to learn. Question and answer. We gave some catechisms. I'm sure some of you have it there uh, under your bed or somewhere. But um, the fourth question of the catechism, catechism, what is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, eternal and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So that, that right there, I know Marisa is like, man, I still remember that. <laughs> but that's exactly what we're looking at. What is God? That's who he is. So when we look at his word, we know this is the God that we're dealing with. He is not fallible like me or like you. He's true. He doesn't change. So therefore, I can take his word and I can trust his word. So let's do that. Let's start with those gifts and work our way from there. So, but before we do that, what do we do? I know some of you perhaps is like, well, why don't they just simply read Acts 15? Well, they didn't have Acts 15. You and I have Acts 15. We have Paul's epistles. They had some. Some had circulated. But we have them. We can go back and look at it. But they didn't have that. So before we were quick to go ahead and, and hit them with, yeah, 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 read your scriptures, they just had the Old Testament. And maybe some of the stuff that Paul, if they were near Paul, of what he had taught and what he was sharing, and what had been circulated. That's it. The New Testament doesn't get confirmed until later on, almost 400 AD later, or 400 AD. So until this point, this is what we have. And that's what they're working off of. So it's important that we have to understand that before we just simply say, read Acts 15. Now, circumcision, according to the law of Moses, right? we go back to Leviticus, and I, and I addressed this when we went over Acts 15, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But they had to, as, as, as a sign of the covenant, again, these male boys had to be circumcised on the eighth day. So why would Paul go, hey, yeah, you, don't need to, you don't need to circumcise them anymore, but then we have an issue. Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Now, remember, he did that with him, now with Titus. So, what do we do? Again, this, is Paul just simply catering? Is he a Christian chameleon? Is he just simply walking, you know, one way with whoever's around him and then kind of changing when it's convenient? No, that is not what Paul is doing. Paul is firm, and we're going to see that here in a second. Paul is firm in what he understands the gospel is. But of course, there's intentional mis representation of what Paul is teaching. It's intentional. It's not accidental. Oh, I heard that maybe Paul might be teaching these things. No, he's teaching them. So there's a detraction. There's, there's an intentional effort to take away from the gospel. Because if you can discredit someone, what happens now? You discredit the message, right? If you can discredit the messenger, what was said about Jesus? Oh, he sits with sinners. He's a drunkard. Because if you can discredit his ministry, 
then what are you, who are you following? But that is why precisely we need to drive our stake in the ground and say, no, where do we do? Now, why does he circumcise Timothy? Well, he circumcised it because he wanted an inroad. It's just an opportunity to go ahead and preach the gospel to the Jews. To have that opportunity to share and explain Christ to the Messianic Jewish community. But what about the customs? Is Paul really truly discouraging them? You don't have to follow the customs. Come on, guys. You guys know better. No. If that were the case, again, Acts 18. What did Paul do? He took an Azrael vow. That was for the Jews. So is he under the law again? No. He's not under the law. What Paul clearly understands is that the law no longer justifies. You don't look to the law to be justified. You don't look to the law to be sanctified. You look to Christ. That is the point. That Christ is at the center of it all. So if you're trying, going back, if you try to go back to your religion and say, I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments, my friend, you're going to be misguided and you're going to be frustrated because you won't, you won't be able to keep it. And so now we're going to go ahead and look at this here in a second. And, and how are they going to resolve this? How are they going to resolve Paul's, quote-unquote, teaching to forsake Moses and to forsake the customs? Well, second point is the, ne the next part, which is verses 22 through 26. This misrepresentation is going to be resolved. It's going to be resolved. Now, there has to be a plan. And I, the reason I mention that is because when there's misrepresentations that lead to confusion in the church, beloved, we have to address them. If it's regarding something that's essential, we have to address it, which was my point earlier. What do we consider essential? This is why they ask the question, what then is to be done? That's a fair question. What then is to be done? I have an opinion on the SBC. We don't have church leaders now. Of course, all the church leaders want to go ahead and, and say, well, let's look to the SBC. And they're all divided. Some are here, some are there. It's a hodgepodge of all this stuff. And some of the churches that we consider very good, solid churches are part of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm being careful. I don't know what I'm saying. but. There's this reality that, what is it there for? It might have started with the best of intentions. And now you have this mix of, what do we do? And so, how do you deal with these things? What are things that are essential? What are the things that are going to divide, or possibly divide a church? Now, we know that the church is not going to be overcome. That we know. Another given. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus, his bride. So we can be assured that you can bring all the divisions, you can bring all the heresies. At the end of the day, the church is being built, and it's going to last. So that we can take to the bank. Now, if you don't have a particular position on an issue, it's okay. You can still come up with one. You can still come up with them. Just make sure that you study God's Word. Study it so that you don't end up in an unbiblical position. That's something that we need to take seriously. This is why we... Hey, guys, we can read all the Christian books by the best Christian authors we want, but God's Word must be central in our daily living. There is no other way. 
R.C. Sproul is great, but R.C. Sproul is fallible. John MacArthur is great, but he is fallible. God's Word is infallible. It's without error. And so we need to go ahead and look at it and take it as it is. And, that, and that's okay. If you don't know, hey, I don't know either. Let's look at it together. So the leaders and the church here have that responsibility to deal with these issues, with the essential doctrines. What are the essential doctrines? God, Jesus, and His deity. That was a point. People didn't believe that He was God, right? That was a, a big issue. Where do you stand? Do you believe that Jesus is, is God? Fully God and fully man? The scripture teaches that. You have to know where you stand. His humanity, the Trinity, salvation by grace, it's not by works. And we go on and on and on. It's only through Christ alone. Gospel, faith, of course, this becomes now a central issue. This becomes a, 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 an issue because are we then to believe the gospel and continue following the law? Now, you might say, no, we discard it. We don't need to follow it. I disagree. That's not what scripture teaches. We still obey the law, but we don't look to the law to be justified. by it. That's the difference. That's the difference. Because how else do you deal with sin? When you say, oh, the Lord convicted me of sin, what did he convict you of? There's no law. What are you convicted of? What about those idols in your heart? The only place that the idols in your heart talk about is in the law. I have no other gods before me. So those little idols that your heart keeps on producing, why are you convicted of them? There's no law. See, that's what the law has its purpose. And we're going to get into the actual use of God's law and the three different uses of this because we need to understand this. So the solution here is they're going to tell them, hey, by the way, go. Purify yourself. Go with these brothers. And show them that you, you still observe the law. Now, what are the uses of God's law? We have to understand this, and I don't mean to be too technical here, but it's important that we understand this. What are the three uses of God's law? Some of you are like, well, I didn't even know there were three uses. That's okay. I also didn't know either. But part of studying is knowing that there are uses for the law. So the first one is we have to understand that there is a civil law. It deals with the understanding of God's law, of this mosaic law. It's kind of, think of it as almost like this bridle, right, and a horse, and putting a bridle on a horse. It has that function. It's, it's almost a sense of restraint for us, for society. That's what it serves. That's, that's one way to use uh, uh, the law. It's that civil use. But then there's another one, which is that the law is also a teacher. It's a schoolmaster. We don't use that word schoolmaster, right? But we know what a teacher is. So what is the, third, what is the second use? It is precisely that, that the law reminds you, hey, this is, you break this, you've sinned. You violate the law, you're a sinner. And I know that many times we want to go ahead and say, oh, but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is your advocate, he's your, and that's true, he is. But the advocate, Jesus standing in our place makes no sense whatsoever if we don't understand who we are apart from Him before a holy God. If you and I do not understand who we are before God, that we stand condemned, dead in our trespasses, 
Why do you need a Savior? No wonder Jesus and God is just simply the good one, right? The little grandfather, the, the Santa Claus, that's just simply there to bless you. But if we truly understand who we are before a holy God, and the only way you're going to know that is by looking at yourself. That's why the law is a mirror. The law is the mirror that you look upon yourself. That's not I'm, not, I'm not completing those things. But the law also serves another purpose. In light of that, of you looking in the mirror, it's going to tell you you're in trouble. And you need a Savior. You need a solution. Maybe not a Savior, but you need a solution. Because you're in a serious predicament if you don't deal with this. Let me, allow me to tell you, or at least to quote for you, um, Martin Luther's second use of the law. Pay attention here. Pay attention. This is the principal purpose of the law and, is, and its most valuable contribution. As long as a person is not a murderer, adulterer, thief, he would swear that he is righteous. How is God going to humble such a person except by the law? The law is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, the lining of God's wrath to bring down the proud and shameless hypocrite. When the law was instituted on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied by lightning, by storms, by the sound of trumpets to tear to pieces that monster called self-righteousness. As long as a person thinks he is right, he is going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. He is going to hate God, despise His grace and His mercy, and ignore the promises in Christ. The gospel of the free forgiveness of sins through Christ will never appeal to the self-righteous. And then he says this, This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs, an, uh, needs a big act. And that is what the law is, a big act. Accordingly, the proper use and function of the law is to threaten until the conscience is scared to death. That is the use of the law in the second use of the law. To the point where you're scared to death. That as I'm looking in the mirror, I, can't, I don't even want to look in the mirror because the more I look at it, the worse it is. The more I'm confronted with my sin. But you don't go to the mirror to help you resolve that sin problem. You go to a Savior. You go to Christ. You, go to the, you understand the gospel. And that's exactly what this is doing. And then the third one is, not only is it that civil law use, not only is it the teaching, the schoolmaster part of it, but it's the third one. Where it's that form of Christian living, the rule of life, as, as it were. Meaning the law is like a flashlight so that we may obey it. It's the one that, it, I, let me just read scripture. Psalm 119. 119.1, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. So I'm, same Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. Day and night. If you do not believe the law, you can't even repeat this. 
you can't even echo what the psalmist is writing or has written. You see that? Without the law, we can't even repeat this. We can't even sing it. You still not convinced? Okay. Let me read to you. Some of you that want membership, want to apply for membership, we give you the, the, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 19. Let me read it for you. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them, as well as to others, in that, as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, and that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it to serve the shoe, what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unallayed rigor thereof, the promises of it likewise shew them God's approbation of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon their performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to to the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under his grace. So you can go ahead and read that, and, there's, and that's only point six, and there's many points to that. But it is important that we understand what the purpose of the law is. So be careful that you land to this, well, Paul says that yeah, we're no longer under, um, under the law. And so do we reject? Do we reject the law? Do we accept the law? What do we do? Antinomians would argue, you do away with it, right? You're anti, against the law. In other words, let me put it this way, the law, no, the Old Testament law, no longer has relevance for us. It, it has no longer relevance to us today. But that's precisely the problem. You would disagree with that. I mean, what then do we do with Jesus' words in Matthew 5? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, not until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What do we do with that? If there is no law. So the solution is not to forsake the law. We obey it. But no longer looking to be justified by it or to be sanctified by it. I don't obey the law so that God is more pleased with me. He's already pleased with you in Christ. He's already pleased with you. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. He sings over you. That's the beautiful part of God because, and the key, the link is, it's in Christ. Because apart from Christ, we're doomed. We're hopeless. John Stott puts it this way. And so, because you, that's the antinomian's problem, but then you have the legalist problem. And the legalist then says, well, no, you need to keep the law. 
That's the only way. Well, John Stott puts it this way. Legalists fear the law and are in bondage to it. The legalist fears the law and thereby. Because that's ultimately what people do. Have you ever spoken to someone and you tell them, oh, you know, you, you bring the, the whole thing about the Ten Commandments? What are the typical two reactions that you're going to get? One is going to be, I need to obey it more. I need to do more of it. I need to keep it. Right? That's the legalist. I need to go ahead and adhere it, and maybe God will be more pleased with me. And then you have the other side of that spectrum that says, and goes the other way. I don't need it. I don't care for it. But both are bound to the law. So that is, that is the predicament that they find. So James and the elders maintain their position in Acts 15, verses uh, 28 and 29. For it has been seen uh, good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from the blood, what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. They simply repeat the same thing, the same consensus that they had in Acts 15. They didn't change. They didn't flip-flop. But there's something else we see. As for Paul is taking them to purify themselves, why does Paul do this? The beautiful part of this is that Paul submits to these elders. He submits to the leaders in Jerusalem. Paul could have easily said, guys, you have no... He could have, I mean, the Lord, he's an apostle called by God. This is how he refers to himself. He could have easily said, guys, <laughs> you know, you know I, I know, I know, I don't need to do any of this. But he does it. He submits. He submits. Because he knows that his observance, and I'm going to get into why this is important and why this makes sense. But his humility and his submission to the elders of the church in Jerusalem cannot be overlooked. And neither can his philosophy of ministry. What is Paul's philosophy of ministry? 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, Corinthians 9 verses 9 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he puts these parentheses. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. You see what he's doing? He's not abolishing. He's not doing away with it. This is his philosophy of ministry. I am all things to all men, which is what we, what we see here. That I might win those that are outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That is precisely the heart and the ministry. I am all things to all men. That doesn't mean that gives you a license to go ahead and now just, you know what, I'm going to go to the bar and get drunk because I'm, not, <laughs> I'm under the law of Christ, you know, and he's paid for it all. That's not what it means. It's not a license to go ahead and do whatever you want to do because now you're under the law of Christ and you understand what that Savior did, that when you looked into that mirror of the law and you know you fell infinitely short and you ran to Christ, 
you realize what he did. What we covered this morning, right, Joshua? Remember what we covered this morning? You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price so that your body is no longer yours, but it belongs to him who purchased it with his blood. That is the heart of the gospel. So yeah, I can go ahead and live. I, I follow the law, but I no longer need to try to be, please God by fulfilling it. On the contrary, Jesus paid for it all. He fulfilled the law. I obey it because it's a lamp unto my feet. His word is good. I delight in it, said the psalmist. That's good. But don't look to be sanctified by it. The Holy Spirit will sanctify you. So what's the solution? Form of legalism and antinomianism? Neither one. Obey Christ. Look to him alone. Look to him alone. Look to his word, yes. It's not law or gospel, but it's the law that shows us our desperate need of a Savior. And so that, with this I end, and I'll read, I'll read Ephesians 2. You know Ephesians 2, we always look at, oh, verses 8, 9, 10, you know, and you're saved uh, by grace and that not of works. And, and Paul is telling us who we, who we were in our trespasses and how we're saved. And who then is saved by grace? Who's saved, right? It's by grace, it's not a work, so no one can go ahead and boast. But then he says this in verses 11 through 22. And this is going to be for us, our cause. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's table here in a moment. We're going to be looking at what Christ did for us. And so, and as we read this, wherever you are, you have an advocate. You have one that shed his blood for you. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. That, we can rejoice in that truth, that he laid down his life for you and for me. For those that are his own, for those that have put their faith and trust in his atoning work, and what Jesus did for them on the cross of Calvary. And so when we read Ephesians 2, when Paul begins with, therefore, I want you to read it with me. Because as we read that, as we read that, you're going to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, you Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's crazy. But that's exactly who we were apart from Christ. Alienated, separated from Him. In verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself 
is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments, and now we know what this means. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Beloved, if you are in Christ, as it was said, you left a courtroom and you entered a household, specifically the household of God. You no longer stand in that courtroom, but you were brought in by adoption into the household, the household of faith, of those that put their faith and trust in the atoning work of Jesus. 